This morning we'll be in today's gospel reading, and it begins this way. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Now, we're so used to this story. We hear it every Christmas. We don't really realize how odd this is. Think about it. Very few people are aware of Jesus' birth at the time. Mary and Joseph, a few shepherds, the angels. Yet here we have wise men traveling from a long way away to greet this little baby in Palestine. Who are these wise men from the east? They're called magi in the Greek New Testament. They are mages, they're magicians, though you shouldn't picture a man pulling a tuxedo, or man in a tuxedo pulling a rabbit from a hat, or pulling a tuxedo from a hat, either one. These magi, they were men of learning in the ancient world. They were seers, they were scholars, they were astrologers. They pored over ancient manuscripts and scrolls. They were men eager for knowledge. And they were often looking to the heavens for a word from the gods. They wished to know the future. Particularly, they wished to know about the rise and fall of nations and kings. It's not a difficult desire to relate to. Consider how much of our time and energy we spend worrying about the rulers of our country and the effects of their decisions. We know these changes will have a huge impact on our lives and on the lives of people around the world. The Magi have the same longing, longing to know what the future holds, particularly as it relates to rulers and kingdoms. The hymn says there were three wise men, probably because three gifts are mentioned in the text, but the Bible doesn't actually say how many Magi there were. They were likely accompanied by a large entourage of servants and guards and family members as well. We're told that they are wise men from the east. Now, most likely this refers to Babylon or to Persia, which were east of Palestine, clear across the Arabian desert. And we know that these kingdoms employed magi in their king's court, But the text doesn't really tell us where they're from. It could be that these wise men are from the Nearer East, like Moab or Edom or one of Israel's immediate neighbors. Matthew goes on. These wise men from the East came to Jerusalem, verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, how did foreigners from the East know that the star they saw prophesied something about Judea. Well, Matthew doesn't tell us. But remember what we've just seen in our series on Jeremiah. Many of the Jews had been exiled by the Babylonians when they conquered Jerusalem. They had been forcibly relocated to Babylon and to Persia and to various places in the east. And most of those who were taken were the well-educated and the wealthy elites of Jerusalem, people who knew the sacred texts of the Hebrews. Think about the story of the exiled Daniel. He and his friends were taken to Babylon for this purpose, for the purpose of studying Babylonian literature and searching through these ancient texts and learning how to advise kings on matters of state. Scripture actually tells us that Daniel served as a magi, in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. 
What did Daniel do as a magi? He was famous for interpreting the king's dreams and visions when no other magi could. And what sort of things were described in those strange and confusing visions? There were statues of mixed metal. There were huge trees. There was a succession of very strange beasts. All this weird stuff, but in our study there, we found that those visions were primarily concerned with the rise and fall of kingdoms. They told of rulers and of empires then in power as well as those that were to come. That's the sort of thing Magi were concerned with, studying, chronicling, even anticipating the rise and fall of kings and kingdoms. Now, the Magi in our story had likely studied whatever ancient texts of wisdom they could get their hands on back in the East. And among the scrolls and parchments in their vast libraries, perhaps they even had writings that were brought into their lands by exiled Jews like Daniel, or texts that were composed by exiled Jews like Ezekiel. Perhaps among those Jewish scrolls in what we now call the Book of Numbers, the Magi read of another wise man, a Gentile like them, a prophet by the name of Balaam. There are many parallels with the story of Balaam from Numbers and what we see in our text. In the story of Balaam, the God of the Hebrews had spoken to this Gentile seer, this wise man, revealing to him things to come. The same kind of knowledge that our Magi sought. And I mention Balaam because in the book of Numbers, God speaks to Balaam of how he would raise a ruler from Israel who would conquer the nations of the promised land. And this ruler was symbolized as a star. Well, we have a star in our story, don't we? Balaam had prophesied, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Now, the Jews understood that prophecy of Balaam to point forward to King David, and thus also to the son of David, the Messiah, the coming king of the Jews. And notice, he is identified with a star. Perhaps this is the star that these magi believe they have seen, and as men who desire more than anything to know the future of world affairs, they travel to welcome this new king and to offer him their homage. Now, the most natural place for them to go when they arrive in Judea is the palace in Jerusalem. It's the capital city of Judea. But the king who currently sits on the throne of Israel is an imposter. King Herod comes from Edom, not Judea. He's not a descendant of David. He is no Messiah. He is a Roman puppet. Consequently, he's not very excited to hear of a new king of the Jews. He thinks he is the king of the Jews, and he wants no competition. Verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Matthew wants us to see some irony here. These wise men, they're foreigners. They may not even be worshipers of Yahweh, yet they have been diligently studying the scriptures and are eager to make this long journey to find the king of the Jews. On the other hand, 
you have King Herod and all Jerusalem, the people who should be most knowledgeable about the Messiah and most excited about his coming, they aren't even aware it's happening. Did they not see the star? Were they not paying attention? Or were they simply blind to what God was doing? And when they do hear that perhaps the long-prophesied Messiah has finally come, how do they react? They are troubled by this news. Not elated, not joyful, Herod and all Jerusalem are troubled. I think Matthew wants us to see that from the beginning, Jesus' own people reject him while the Gentiles receive him gladly. But what is Herod to do with this news he receives from these wise men from the east? Well, he consults his scribes. What do we know about the prophesied Messiah? How might we locate him? And they point Herod to the prophecy of Micah. And the reference here is an easy one to remember for your Bible trivia needs. Just remember that Matthew 2.5 quotes Micah 5.2. That's handy, isn't it? Micah 5.2 says that a ruler, a shepherd of Israel, will come from the town of Bethlehem, the same town where King David was from. So Herod relays this information to the Magi, and he says to them, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. As you know, Herod has no intention of worshiping this young threat to his throne. Going back to that story of Balaam in the book of Numbers, Balak, king of Moab, tried to convince Balaam, the Gentile prophet, to curse God's people Israel as they're making their way through the promised land. So now, King Herod seeks to enlist these Gentile wise men in his plan to protect his dominion from God's true son. But the Magi don't know that. Remember, it was a Magi's job to gain knowledge and then employ that knowledge by advising kings, so they likely would have reported back to Herod, if not for what happens shortly hereafter. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, the rising and moving of this star is kind of a confusing aspect of this passage. Now, we know it's possible to follow a star in a metaphorical sense, Ships often navigate by stars. The stars can mark general directions and help you find your way in that manner. But here, this star appears to be moving very quickly and very close to the earth, leading the Magi along what would have been a three-hour journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And then this star comes to rest, apparently, over a specific house where they can find Jesus. Now, that doesn't sound like any star that we know. Huge celestial bodies of gas and fire. In fact, it would be a cataclysmic disaster if an actual star got that close to the earth, wouldn't it? I imagine some of you are aware of the Bethlehem star or the Christmas star phenomenon. It occurs when Jupiter and Saturn align in such a way that they appear as one single bright light 
often at the end of December, hence the association with this story. Apparently, the one that just happened most recently was the brightest one in 800 years. But let's think about this. Even if there was some unique conjunction of planets at the first Christmas, how would you follow such a thing from one city to the next? And how would it rest over a single house? I think it's unlikely that we're talking about a conjunction of planets here. So what do we do with this? Well, there's a couple of explanations. Perhaps we are misunderstanding the description given in the text. You know, maybe there's something lost in translation here. Or maybe we are reading our modern understanding of a star into this story when the ancients had a more pliable use uh, for that word. Perhaps God provided some smaller manifestation of light, some shining light that would have resembled a star in the night sky, but was able to lead and guide these wise men to a specific house. Perhaps it was an angel. There are places in Scripture where angelic beings, messengers from God, are poetically described as stars, shining lights. Jesus is called the bright morning star in Revelation. Perhaps this is a heavenly guide sent to lead these wise men to the Christ. And we know from our familiarity with the Christmas story that angels have a unique role in heralding the coming of Christ at his birth. Perhaps this star was an angel. Who can say for certain? What is clear is that whatever was seen... It was understood by the wise men and by Matthew as a sign that divine light had broken into the darkness of our world, the same way a star shines in the night sky. And they understood that that star signified the rise of the long-expected Davidic king. Verse 10 when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, remember, they're not walking into a palace or a great hall to see a prince surrounded by guards and heralds and courtiers and subjects. They find the young son of a poor carpenter. There's no fanfare or worldly glory about him. And yet, these magi show great faith in what has been revealed to them. What God has revealed, they believe. They see this boy and they bow down and honor him as king. And this is the whole point of the passage. What we see right here is that Jesus Christ draws all nations to himself even as an infant. Jesus Christ draws all nations to himself. The contrast here between the Magi and the people of Jerusalem is striking. Remember what you learned back in verse 3. Herod and all Jerusalem are troubled over this child, but look, these Gentile wise men bow before him. Matthew draws our attention to this distinction because it foreshadows later events of his gospel. Many of Jesus' fellow Jews will reject him. So the gospel will go to the Gentiles. As Jesus himself will later illustrate it, the vineyard owner sends his son to those who are tending his vineyard. 
but they kill the son. So the vineyard owner will judge the tenants, and he will let out the vineyard to others who will give him the fruits in their seasons. As Paul describes it in Romans, the vine dresser will cut out the dead branches and graft in wild shoots that will bear fruit. Israel rebels against the Messiah from his birth, and so the Gentiles are grafted in. This early story in the life of Christ foreshadows that. All Jerusalem is troubled, but the Gentile magi bow before him. Christ draws the nations to himself. And they pay him tribute. Look at verse 11. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Again, thinking back to that story of Balaam, God spoke to the Gentile prophet Balaam in the night, warning him not to curse the people of Israel as the Moabite king had commanded him. So God speaks to these magi in their dreams, warning them not to return to Herod as he had asked them to. This is the first but not the last time that God will intervene to save his beloved son from Herod just as he once intervened to save baby Moses from Pharaoh. Now what about these gifts? The first Christmas presents, I guess. Gold, frankincense, myrrh. In the past, the church has seen them as symbolic. The church father, Irenaeus, suggested that gold is often associated with royalty. Frankincense was used in worship, so that represents divinity. Myrrh was a spice used in burial, so it represents death. And maybe you notice that uh, his interpretation is reflected in the verses of We Three Kings. Whether that was Matthew's intention or not, there's certainly truth to it. Jesus is king, and he is God, and he is sacrifice, as the song says. Now, if we look through the Bible, that would reveal to us that gold, frankincense, and myrrh are all connected with worship at the tabernacle and the temple. There's gold plating and furniture in God's house. Frankincense was an ingredient in the incense burned there. Myrrh was used to anoint the furniture and the priests. So if we take that biblical symbolism, we see that these gifts show Jesus to be the new tabernacle. The new temple. This little baby is now the place where God dwells with man. All true worship of God must now occur in Jesus. Thus, we, his worshipers, are baptized in Jesus' name. We offer our prayers in Jesus' name. Matthew is showing that Jesus is the new temple, the new house of God which draws the nations to itself. And in this light, we should remember who it was that furnished the gold and supplies used to build the first tabernacle. It was Gentiles, wasn't it? The Egyptians gave gold and cloth to the Israelites as they were leaving Egypt, and that's what they used to build the tabernacle. Who supplied the resources for building Solomon's temple? Well, that was Hiram of Tyre a Gentile. He gave Solomon the lumber and craftsmen and precious metals needed for the temple. 
Well, who commissioned the building of the second temple when the Jews returned from exile? It was another Gentile, a Gentile king named Cyrus of Persia. He sent the Jews out with gold and silver, sacred vessels and animals for sacrifice. Do you see the pattern developing? Throughout the story of redemption, God has been using the wealth of the nations to sponsor the building of his temple. So that's what's going on in this short story in Matthew. In the New Testament, we see the Magi bringing rich gifts of tribute to the new temple, Christ Jesus. God is once again building his house with gifts from the Gentiles. Aside from the symbolism of these gifts, the church has also seen their presence here as fulfillments of Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. The psalm and the Old Testament reading for this Feast of Epiphany bear this out. Psalm 72, a prayer for Israel's king. May he have dominion from sea to sea. May kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. May people be blessed in him, all nations call him blessed. Now this reference to Psalm 72 is why the Magi came to be called kings in the Christmas Psalms. They were seen as fulfilling Psalms like this. The Old Testament reading, Isaiah 60, a prophecy of God's future plans for Israel. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. Listen, they shall bring gold and frankincense. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations. If we read Matthew 2 in light of these texts, as the church has done in the past, we see that this visit of the Magi is not just a story of some starry-eyed magicians on a diplomatic mission of goodwill. These Magi are the first fruits of a worldwide harvest. Before he can even speak, Jesus is drawing the nations to himself. They are bringing him their wealth, their gifts, and honoring him as king Jesus is the promised Messiah, the son of David, the fulfillment of the scriptures, and he is the savior, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. That's what Matthew wants us to see as he recounts this visit of the Magi. What child is this? This is Christ, the king, the one whose praise is sung in the Psalms, the one whose reign is foretold by the prophets, and he is drawing the nations to himself. So why do we celebrate this Feast of Epiphany and read these same texts year after year and preach these same sermons year after year? Because we need this yearly reminder that the prophecies of the kingdom will come true. We look at our culture and our world and we're tempted to think that everything's going to the devil, that evil is winning, that the kingdom is losing ground. But Matthew tells us it's not true. It will not be true. For we see with the Magi that King Jesus has been drawing the nations to himself from the moment he was born. 
And throughout the scriptures, we are told that this is how it will be from then until eternity. In fact, it's the final note of the whole story. Think about the last book of the New Testament, the Revelation. In fact, Revelation is a synonym for epiphany, isn't it? Chapter 21 of Revelation pictures the church as the new Jerusalem, the city come down from heaven. And how does the Apostle John describe her? I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Remember, we said the Magi's gifts show Jesus to be the true temple. John goes on. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. He is the star. He is the unusual light to whom all nations stream. Of this star, John goes on to say, By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. You see the connection. Just as the Magi followed the light of the star and brought their glorious gifts to the Christ child, so this is how the Bible ends. Jesus is the star, and the nations will follow him into his kingdom, bringing their glory to lay at his feet. From beginning to end, the New Testament tells us that the nations will come to worship King Jesus. So, knowing this story of the Magi, knowing the prophecy of Revelation, we should have great confidence in our king. From ancient of days, it has been his destiny to bring the nations under his rule. Even as a helpless babe, he could draw all peoples to himself. How much more so now that he is the risen and ascended Lord of heaven and earth. So trust in his word. God has sent his star into the darkness. He has sent his son to take away our sins and to lead us into the kingdom. Trust that he will continue to draw all men to himself. And follow the Magi's example. Offer all that you are and all that you do as your gift to the king, that you might point the world to the bright morning star, the savior of the nations, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Everlasting God, you brought the nations to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Fill the world with your glory and use us to reveal yourself to the nations through him who is the true light and the bright morning star, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.